Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. In addition to a short lecture at the start of most episodes, we ask our guest experts questions submitted by listeners and allow them to share their thoughts in a safe environment. Please visit our Twitter page for feedback and question submission forms. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy. Frameworks, um, these types of things. Um, are they, are they, these are man-made. Right. Correct. Yeah. Right. It's not like any type of framework or methodology right. came down from above. So this is individual people exerting themselves and creating their own methodologies with right. other people agree upon based on how it appeals to their, right. their own way of thinking. Right. Um, on that note, is it possible, first of all, I guess, what are the uh, repercussions of not following any one person's methodology? Uh, one. And number two, can someone create their own methodology today? Can they approach the Quran and Sunnah in, in, in developing their own, I guess, you know, law? Right. So, so theoretically, there is no compulsion for Muslims to, uh, to stick to one madhab or to follow the usul. Theoretically, everything is possible. Uh, that a person can come up with their own usul because these are, at the end of the day, these are man-made usuls, right? Uh, the, the Hanafi approach or the Shafi approach and so on, these are all man-made approaches. And the fatwas given by the muftis in each of these schools are also uh, human fatwas. So theoretically, everything is possible. But the question we have to be asking ourselves is, what is the probability of error? So just like somebody who's only done high school uh, versus somebody who's done a PhD in physics, you cannot really compare the two, right? Theoretically, it's possible that the high schooler uh, comes up with something that the PhD in physics couldn't figure out. It's theoretically possible. But the chances are extremely remote, right? Similarly, with when it comes to Islamic law, what is really important is that the person who's engaging in it is qualified to engage in it. So in that sense, to go back and reimagine the usul, I think it's a Herculean task, and most likely we're not fit for it. Uh, and I say that mainly because the probability of error is very high. But at the same time, it is also true that there are many issues in today's world that require us to think beyond a single madhab. When it comes to economic issues, when it comes to political issues, and to a certain extent also when it comes to social issues. We, there's a, a strong, uh, uh, one can easily make a case that you have to think beyond your madhab. But again, who thinks beyond the madhab? That is the question. Who's supposed to do that thinking? That has to be done with senior scholars who have a deep understanding of Islamic law, of more than one madhab, and who also have a good understanding of the society we live in. So in terms of not following a madhab, uh, and I guess um, switching between madhab, like we right. kind of mentioned that, as far as you know, um, a lot of people are taught that you're not allowed to switch between madhab, and right. a lot of people, it right. may not make sense to them, because right. they're like, these are all correct, and they all are you know, derived using some you know, very strong logic, and uh, uses a very strong logic and all the proper sources and everybody re- agrees upon uh, many of these principles uh, but you're still not allowed to jump from one to the other because each individual school's methodology is different yeah. and where according to one school's methodology what you're doing is not okay right. so in that sense I guess it's a two-part question one and we, we kind of went over this before but what are the implications of that according to the madhab like does it mean that according to a person in madhab using the methodology of the madhab, uh, disagrees with the other person, is he saying that person is committing a sin? Uh, or is it just merely at the level of, I guess, you know? Well, so, so there are different terms used here. Uh, the most common term used is called ittiba al-hawa, which is following your desires. 
And again, the idea there is that if you switch madhabs, uh, most likely you're not doing it to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You're pleasing it because it, you find it easier, you find it more beneficial for yourself, right? So there, basically what you're doing is you're putting your own interests ahead of whatever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala demands of you. So that's, that's one argument. The other argument is that the probability of error has increased considerably because when you start switching madhabs, it's very easy to become uh, really lax in your practice. So for example, one day you pray Dhuhr uh, at a very late time because the Hanafis permit that. And the next day you basically pray the Asr at a very early time because the Shafis permit that. What's happening now is you're beginning to lose sense of the timing of Asr and Dhuhr, right? And before you know it, what you have is this muddle time in which Zohar and Asr both can be prayed during one time. In which case you're not following the Ithna Ashari Matab, right? <laughs> so the, the, this is sort, sort of uh, the, the possibility of, of not being disciplined in your approach to Islamic law, that is there. And in, in each of these cases, going to the Hanafis, for example, if you pray Asr early on, then your Asr does not even count, right? Uh, it has to be prayed in its own time. So there are cases where you basically, according to one madhab, you're committing a sin. So, so the, the, the risks are very high in terms of not being able to do things right. And therefore, there's, there's a lot of emphasis against it. But again, we, uh, one thing I would like to emphasize is we have to differentiate between ibadat and between mu'amalat. Mu'amalat includes social, economic, and political issues. When it comes to social, economic, and political issues, I think there's a very strong case which can be made that we have to rise above the madhabs for the simple reason that the modern condition is too complicated for one madhab to be able to answer it. The staunchest of Hanafis, for example, who have a plethora of rulings on, on uh, economic transactions, so many rulings that people, everybody else follows Hanafis. Even those Hanafis at times feel compelled to go outside the madhab because the modern condition is so complicated. So that is something we have to keep in mind. When it comes to ibadat, personally my approach is stick to one madhab. That is the most disciplined way. That is the best way to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Pick one madhab, learn it from uh, somebody who's trained in that madhab, and stick to it. When it comes to the socio-economic and political issues, that's where senior scholars should come together and give a fatwa. And that fatwa could be based in any madhab, depending on, again, because they will be disciplined enough to do it the right way. If a common person starts engaging, giving fatwas on those issues, a common person will also create a mess over there. And has Islam become too focused on the law uh, and, and the principles of law as opposed to, I don't know, uh, the actual purpose of religion? I think so. The question is not, it's, it's not about law. It's about letter versus the spirit. Are we too focused on the form of Islam or are we too focused on the, uh, the spirit of Islam? I think that's the question. So yes, th there is a risk in certain communities uh, where there is too much emphasis on the form of Islam uh, or, or the form of Islamic practice that people will lose sight of the spirit. So that there is a risk there. <clears throat> and that is why Islamic law should not be studied in isolation. Excuse me. It has to be studied in conjunction with other aspects of Islam. So it has to be a full package. It, can, it should not be just one, uh, one thing that is studied. Yeah. Um, and how involved is Islamic law? We kind of mentioned earlier the different distinctions and uh, de definitions of, of, of Sharia and, and Islamic law. But I mean, how involved is Islamic law in a person, in someone's personal life? Uh, you know. Uh, well, Islamic law governs everything, right? When it comes to ibadat, your daily schedule is is made around your salah, right? Yeah. You have to get up for fajr. You have to pray zohar at a certain time, asr at a certain time, and so on and so forth. So that's right there. Uh, when it comes to marriage and divorce, again, Islam is important. Islamic law plays a role. When it comes to engaging in transactions um, of, of any kind, economic transactions, again, Islamic law is important. So, for example, you go to the store to buy something, and they're giving you the change back, and they give you more than what you are actually owed. 
Islamic law tells you to give the money back to them that they did not owe you. That is an effect of Islamic law. Uh, when it comes to, uh, to social relations, how do you deal with people? How do you deal with your teachers? How do you deal with your uh, colleagues? All of these issues, this is where Islam plays a role. So Islamic law by its very nature is very comprehensive. And this is why we have to be careful. Islam is not, Islamic law is not just about worships. It is about social relations, about economic and political relations. And underlying all of these things is the ethics. That ethics is an important part of Islamic law. And ethics is the domain which sort of uh, then takes us into the domain of spirituality. So in other words, the question is not of practicing Islamic law. The question is that of practicing Islam. And Islam is a complete package where there is a certain theology which leads to a certain law. And all of that is also connected with spirituality. Has Islamic law offered civilization anything new or beneficial that perhaps regarding women or historically? A lot, a lot. Islamic law has offered uh, civilization a lot. Uh, in the case of women, there's a very clear distinction between uh, the status of women before the coming of Islam and post-Islam. There's a very clear improvement. We see that in the case of the women of Arabia and the other parts of the world where Islam reached them. Uh, just by way of comparison, Women did not get the right to own property until the 19th century in the West. Uh, they were not even considered a full economic person um, until, the, until the end of 19th and early 20th century. So there's a huge difference there, right? In the case of Muslim, uh, Muslim Islamic civilization, women were businessmen, businesswomen early on because they had the right to own property. So there's a huge change there. In terms of uh, other effects on, on the world civilization, I think the biggest effect is that Islamic law by its very nature compels the practitioner to keep the rights of others in mind so the idea of ethical business the idea of ethical life that comes from islam and so islamic law because of its close connection to ethics in islam it gives that to humanity what we find today with the rise of capitalism with the right of the, the corporate culture we find ethics do not play any role whatsoever according to some uh, some commentators the biggest source of evil in the world today is the business schools Right, because the kind of training people get in those business schools and those MBA programs is such, which is completely devoid of any ethics whatsoever. So in that sense, Islamic law presents you with a contrast that Islamic law makes sure that you're grounded in ethics. But of course, uh, at the end of the day, these are all human efforts, right? So if a person chooses consciously or unconsciously to focus only on the form of Islamic law and ignores the underlying ethics, then you will have complications, you will have weird results. But those who pursue Islamic law as a complete package in conjunction with the ethical part of Islam, then it's going to produce good results. What's the role of, of custom in Islamic law? Oh, custom, yes. <clears throat> so this goes back to our, our, the discussion we were having earlier on about thawabit and mutaghayyarat, constants and variables. Orf has a role to play in the variables. And, and, and orf is? Orf is basically whatever is customary among the people. So for example, when you go to the, uh, to the market to, uh, to buy something, well, you pick it up from the shelf and go to the counter and you pay the <coughs> uh, the amount to the clerk without saying anything, right? That is all. So in some Islamic schools, there's this idea for you to be able to purchase something, you have to say, I want to purchase this, and they have to say, I agree to sell this to you, right? The Hanafi school was the early one uh, which said, no, you don't even have to say it. If there's a, or if there's a custom in which transaction can take place without verbally saying anything, the transaction will be valid. So that's a form of orf, which the Hanafi school adopted. And, and because of the Hanafi school's adoption of it, others also ended up adopting. So that's one example. Other examples would be in the case of marriage and divorce. What is the exact actual formula for saying that I'm, I agree to marry you? That changes from culture to culture. 
What about the, the dowry that is to be given to the bride? That varies from culture to culture, right? So, so there's a lot of domain for that. But one of the things we have to keep in mind is that the domain of custom has to be defined by Islamic law and not the other way around. Custom has a role to play, but it is subservient to the Quran and Sunnah. If the Quran and Sunnah permit certain room for the custom, then custom comes into the into to play a role. If the Quran and Sunnah are very explicit about something, they're not custom dependent, then the custom does not play a role. I, I kind of moving on, I guess, and I know this might segue into a different mm-hmm. discussion that uh, I hope to have, is what's the role between Islamic law and, and, and the state? And I use that statement right. in a very loose term. Right. But um, and how did any leader of any, you know, because, I mean, throughout Islamic history, it's not like there's one huge um, um, united empire. There's multiple, several right. smaller um, uh, ruling um, people. So um, how do they utilize Islamic scholars uh, in their own area? Right. So when it comes to the relationship between Islamic law and the state, uh, there are different dimensions to it. One is the question of what is going to be the law of the land. So throughout Islamic history, uh, most Muslim states, maybe even all as far as I know, they upheld Islamic law. So civil issues were decided by Islamic law, criminal issues were decided by Islamic law, economic transactions, economic issues were decided by Islamic law, even political matters to a certain extent were decided by Islamic law. And there was a domain of in political issues that the jurists themselves said, this is siyasa sharia, that is to say, this is the domain where the rulers are better positioned to come to a conclusion, to come to a decision based upon maslaha. So there's this huge domain within Islamic law where the jurists themselves say this is the domain where maslaha will take precedence over other things because this is the place where pragmatic decisions need to be taken. So in that sense, Islamic law has been closely connected to the state from the earliest period. And again, we're using state in a very general sense, in a very loose sense, not in the strict modern sense. The other question you asked was, did Muslim rulers in history use the ulama? I think they tried to use them. I think that's that would be uh, correct to say that they tried to use them. But for the most part, while some scholars lent themselves to be used by the by the rulers, the vast majority of scholars were able to uh, to keep the distance from the rulers. And in that sense, Islamic law was never really overtaken by the rulers. Islamic law developed at the hands of jurists who were working independently. And that how it has, that's how it has continued to develop until today. In today's world, we have this complication that because of the rise of the modern nation state, the domain of Islamic law has diminished considerably. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the jurists are still by and large independent. By and large independent. In the Arab world, there's extensive control uh, by the many Arab governments. And they try to force scholars to take a position that is in line with the, with the ruler's uh, uh, ideas. But still, nevertheless, you will find some independent scholar opposing them somehow. So by and large, I would say Islamic uh, legal experts have maintained their independence. Do scholars ever think about the implications of certain rulings or understandings or the, the, you know, the results of research um, would have on the average person uh, before they, I guess, talk about it publicly? I think, yeah, I, I think that there is this concern at times that everything should not be shared with everyone because people might misuse it. I think there's uh, there's this concern. In my experience, I've encountered ulama who have had that attitude. Um, and it's justifiable. It is justifiable because you will find people saying weird things because they came across this one tiny bit of information about Islamic law. So I think that is understandable. But like I said earlier, even if uh, some try to restrict the flow of information, 
sooner or later the information does come out and uh, and the ulama are aware of it they they know this is how it's uh, done these days and is there an islamic scholarly class so there are different ways of looking at it uh, theologically there is no islamic scholarly class uh, but socially yes there is and socially there's an islamic scholarly class just as in the, in in the world today you have an academic class right there's certain groups of people who are professors uh, they're not the same as everybody else. They're different. And there's a whole process of becoming a professor. You, you have to get your bachelor's, master's, and PhD, and then publish, and so on and so forth, until you get to that stage. Similar with Islamic law. There are people who spend their time in learning about Islamic law, and then they increase in their knowledge. They, they produce publications. They, they write stuff, and so on. And that's how they reach that stage. And so, by its very nature, that process <coughs> weeds out the weak, right? And so, you're left with, you're left with a certain class, who have basically spent a lot more time and energy into becoming what they have become. So in that sense, there's a class. But it's not like it's mandated. Uh, what that means is that class is open to anyone. If you're willing to put in the time and the effort that is required to it, you can be a part of that class as well. Nobody's stopping you from doing that. And throughout history, I mean, how is, that, how is the definition, the definition uh, throughout history of what, what a scholar is changed? I mean, from the early period, I'm sure that when... Uh, when the Prophet used these words, he didn't mean, you know, um, like a graduate of any seminar. Right, right, um, right. There's a completely different understanding. But we develop our understanding based on what he considered right, to be someone right. else. So. I mean, so, so the basic concept of an alim is somebody who knows more than others. That's the basic idea. And But when it comes to Islam, the idea of alim is that alim is somebody who not only knows more, but also fears God more. So the Quranic verse, that only those who are knowledgeable among his slaves are the ones who truly fear God. So this idea that ilm and amal have to go together is, is there in the time of the Prophet But as knowledge becomes more complicated, as the ancillary tools required to master knowledge become more complicated and more advanced, then it becomes more difficult for people to pursue that path. So in that sense, the, the definition of alim changes from time to time. And eventually what you end up having is there are certain texts that become definitive that if you've mastered this text, you've reached this level. If you've mastered this text, you've reached another level, and so on and so forth. When we come to the modern period, what we find is that you have these organized madrasas in the case of South Asia, you have Islamic universities in the case of the rest of the Muslim world, and you have to graduate from those institutions in order to be considered an alim. That's what has happened today. But the core function of an alim, which is from the time of the Prophet ﷺ, has been that the alim is somebody who knows more and then imparts that knowledge to the community. So in one of the famous verses in the Qur'an, uh, I forget the exact wording in Arabic, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling people that everybody should not go into this expedition, rather some should stay behind so that they develop a deeper understanding of deen and so that they may warn those who come back. So the idea then is, that uh, an alim is somebody whose first job before anything else uh, that is after having acquired knowledge and acting upon it is to be a preacher an alim is also a preacher in that sense but as like i said as as things become complicated then an alim being a preacher does not always work you have people who are great scholars but they're not preachers right uh, in recent history we have the example of Mawlana zakaria khan the ta'ala he's from india passed away in early 80s, he was not a public speaker at all. So he wouldn't go on preaching tours. 
but he was a Sufi Sheikh and he was also a, uh, a great scholar of Hadith and of other Islamic sciences. So his work is more scholarly as we today call it. But the idea of preaching is still there. And it's in the mind of every alim, everybody who graduates from a madrasa or everybody who graduates from Islamic university. The idea is still there that whatever I do should benefit the ummah. Whether it is through a direct wa'ad or bayan in a masjid or it is through a writing that I produce, it has to benefit the ummah. I think the critical question that, and this is like I said, this is like fresh in the minds of everybody. The critical question that we have now is, is being a preacher enough for you to be an alim? In other words, is it enough for an alim only to be a preacher? I think that, that is a problem for, for an alim to think that being a preacher is enough. I think an alim should go beyond that as well and should also aspire to become, at least to a certain extent, some kind of a research scholar. Uh, I think there's a lot of gap there between uh, what is needed from our ulama and what our institutions are producing, especially in the case of madrasas of the South Asian variety. We are producing more preachers than research scholars. And yes, everybody does not have to become a research scholar, but some of them should become a research scholar. So I think there's a bit of a gap there. But nevertheless, the basic task of a scholar, of, of an alim, which is that to preach to the masses beyond the basics, meaning they should be so well grounded in, 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 in Islamic knowledge, they can preach to the masses with confidence, without mistake. I think that is a task that everybody recognizes. And the vast majority of ulama engage in that task on a daily basis. The, the emphasis by a lot of scholars in America to, to kind of um, uh, urge people to like follow a scholar and to, and to learn from a scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, on that note, I mean, how much of Islam, how much of the, I guess, our primary sources can, can the layperson access just by himself? Um, and how much does he have to go through um, a scholar? Yeah, so again, theoretically, everything is possible. You might be that, that one genius who's able to access all of these things and, and process them properly in a short period of time. Theoretically, that is possible. But in general, that does not happen. You study any field of knowledge, you need somebody to guide you. Um, and even if you have access to all the information, you need to have a methodology to be able to process it correctly. So that's where the role of the teacher is very important. And I think that's where it's, it's important for anybody who wants to study Islam that they should study it with a teacher so that they are able to do it in a timely fashion they don't spend their whole lives trying to understand some basic concept. And number two, they, the probability of error goes down considerably because you have a teacher who knows the, the material inside out. Is there any abuse um, from scholars in urging um, lay people to, to, to follow scholars? I mean, in terms of them, I guess, building, I mean, especially in America, in terms of them building up their own name or, I don't know. Uh, it's possible. So, but... There are hadith, guess, right, uh, right, against this. right, but it is possible, and maybe some ulama are doing that, but we cannot be sure that they're doing it, because for us to be sure, we have to know what's in their hearts, right? And we have no way of knowing that. So it's, it's better not to ha- hold a bad opinion about the ulama. I think we should give everybody the benefit of the doubt. If you don't like somebody, or if you don't like somebody's approach, you don't have to follow him. Nobody's forcing you to follow anybody. Uh, I do see a rise in, in this whole movement of celebrity sheikhs. And uh, and again, I think that's where the, the worst elements of the business school mentality have crept into the the Islamic circles, unfortunately. There's people are spending too much time in marketing, too much time in branding, and less time in actual studying and doing research. And I think all of them start from a sincere place. They They start with good intentions, but eventually the marketing takes over, and before you know it, 
they themselves are victims of it. I think that's that's more accurate than to say that they had a cynical plan to begin with. I think that would be wrong. But nevertheless, yes, one has to be careful about this. If you see in, in some alim that he's spending more time in branding and marketing, then if nothing else, at least he's off the right path. So find somebody else who's not that charismatic, who's not that famous, who doesn't have such a huge social media presence, but who has the decency and the humility to teach you something one-on-one without charging you money. Then find such a scholar. And I kind of want to end um, with a question that I think really you probably are one of the people who's most capable and uh, in answering a question like this. And this, what's the difference between studying Islam um, in the madrasa and in the Western um, institution? And those of you wondering, uh, Sheikh Amir, as you mentioned in the beginning, is actually a graduate from a traditional university. And he's also pursuing his PhD at, I mean, one of the top universities uh, in the world, especially in this field, the University of Chicago. Right, to answer your question, uh, when you study in a madrasa, and a madrasa is just a, a sort of a, a title here, when you study with a, a traditionally trained scholar and you study the mutun-based, the text-based uh, system, the intention there is to learn Islam, to practice it. That is a big, uh, that is a key part of it, that you are sincerely trying to learn Islam, to practice it. When you go to a university, a Western university, the approach is different. Your approach is research-based. You don't even have to be a Muslim. There are prominent scholars of Islamic law in the Western Academy who are not even Muslim. Same thing for all of the areas of Islam, of Islamic studies. So that's that's a huge difference. <clears throat> Another key difference is that when you are studying in an Islamic setting with an Islamic scholar, not only do you grow in your knowledge, you also grow in your amal, in your deeds, and also in your spirituality. Your studying with that scholar will help you reach a level that you would not have reached on your own in all of these areas, spiritually and intellectually. On the other hand, when you're studying in a Western university, <clears throat> you are battling a lot of things. One of those is doubts. You will have Orientalist thinking about Islamic history, uh, and that will force you to rethink whether you actually the, the history of Islam that you had been taught in the madrasa was even correct or not. There will be the spiritual cost. You are sitting with disbelievers, and the states of their hearts will have an effect upon you. You're, living in an, you're mo- moving around in an environment with semi-naked women. That's going to have an effect upon you. So there are a lot of challenges in, in studying in the Western Academy. But I think if somebody has been grounded well in the tradition, in a madrasa setting or with traditional scholars in an informal setting, they can survive this and they can actually benefit from it. One of the key benefits of studying in a Western university is developing a historical sense. I think that is something that was sorely lacking in my madrasa training. We did not get enough historical sense there. Maybe, in fact, almost zero. Uh, we, I got that in, in the university setting. And also the tools of research. And then even beyond that, the, the ability to write well and the ability to articulate yourself effectively in a scholarly manner. I think that is, has been a huge uh, benefit of studying at a place like University of Chicago. But <clears throat> I have also noticed uh, the cost in terms of spirituality, in terms of diminished deeds and so on. I think there's, there's a huge cost there. And so again, it's, I, th- I don't think it's for everybody. But some should pursue it because the ends at the end of what what comes out at the end, I think, is is still worth it. I noticed in in your answer of the question an underlying assumption, and that is that the tradition is important. Adhering to the tradition is important. Um, What do you mean when you say tradition? Is this a a 
a type of, I guess, the, method, the, the methodologies of all the scholars of the past, or is it something else? And um, besides that, if the goal is truth, and there is a methodology, methodology developed at another institution that you personally believe helps you access that truth better, or understand, or understand better. Um, perhaps it's time to rethink our fundamental understanding of, 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 of tradition and, and our need to adhere to it. Well, so <clears throat> nothing is perfect, right? So when we talk of tradition, again, it is a human construct. But a tradition is basically a group of people who are in conversation with one another across time, right? So in that sense, the Western, the West is a tradition as well, right? And Islam is also a tradition in its own right. <clears throat> the benefit of studying in the tradition and the benefit of adhering to it is that you remain a believer. It trains you to be a believer. And so before you commit to the tradition, that's when you're seeking the truth. You're trying to find out which tradition is correct. The Western Academy is a tradition. It's part of the larger Western intellectual tradition. That is a certain tradition. It has certain uh, underlying bases, and it works on, on those assumptions. It has a certain framework. It works with that. The Islamic tradition has its own framework. It has certain uh, requirements to be, be a part of that tradition. So when you're a seeker of truth, first you have to figure out which tradition do you want to be with. In other words, do you want to be a believer in God, and you want to be a believer in the Prophet Muhammad as the last messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or not? Once you've made that decision, then you go with the Islamic tradition. That's where you learn. So in other words, your foundation has to be the Islamic tradition. Once you've made the foundation, now you see, okay, do I have, do I need certain tools in this day and age that I'm not getting in the tradition? If you need those tools and the tradition is unable to provide those tools, for that, like me, you come to the Western Academy. But I'm coming here for the tools, not for the framework, not for the way of thinking and being. That is coming from the Islamic tradition. What is happening in today's world is a lot of Muslim youth, especially in America, for example, are going to Western, going to the Western Academy thinking that that's where they will learn their deen. That is just wrong. This is not the place to learn your deen. This is the place to learn tools of research, not the place to learn your deen. For that, you have to go to a scholar who is a practicing Muslim and who cares about your religion as well. <coughs> and in terms of perspective, and I mean, let's say, for example, you're studying in the Western Academy and you notice through other studies that you kind of uh, other subject areas in which you um, have expertise, you kind of mix it up and you come to a conclusion that, I mean, perhaps is completely against what's traditionally understood, or perhaps you develop a new methodology that kind of throws away a, an older methodology or older assumption, uh, simply because you're looking at it from um, a different framework, a different um, and a different context. Uh, there's there's less fear in the Western Academy, right and um, and there's all these things that you have to take into consideration. You might come to a conclusion that's very different than the tradition, but is your, I guess, is your, um, is your, is your claim to, to being a Muslim and to being an adherent of, of the, the, the religion of the Prophet any, any, any less because you've done that? Well, if you have not committed disbelief, you're still a believer. Right? Well, I mean, again, like, for example, disbelief, defined by traditional scholars as yeah. X, but I mean, you kind of, you study and you develop, or you, I, like this kind of goes back to our earlier conversation, but I mean, you, you come to a different conclusion about what the nature of disbelief is. And so, I mean, so, okay. So at the end of the day, 
whether you are working within the framework of the Islamic tradition or you've come up with something new, the final judge is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In the world, you're going to make your case in front of the people. And the people might accept your case or they will not accept your case. But how will people judge you? That is the question, right? People will judge you with the framework that they have, which is the Islamic tradition. So in other words, what you're saying is if somebody like this, not you in particular, but somebody comes <laughs> up with that, what they're saying is basically the tradition that you have was wrong all along and I've come up with something new and this is correct. You got to make a case for it. If somehow you're able to make that case for it, good for you. Good for you, Akhirah, and good for the Akhirah of everybody else. Uh, but most likely, as far as my knowledge and experience tells me, it's not going to happen. Most likely the framework that you come up with is going to be wrong because the Islamic tradition is, is sound. It's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's, it's totally fine. There are certain aspects of, uh, of how to perceive certain things, how to, how to approach certain things, where, of course, some, some tweaking always takes place. But in its fundamentals, the Islamic tradition is totally sound. There is no problem there. Because what is Islamic tradition saying? Islamic tradition is saying that the Quran and Sunnah are the final arbiters for us humans in this world. And the final judge in the Akhirah is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if somebody says, well, the Quran and Sunnah are not the final arbiters here, then what exactly are they coming up with, right? So I, I, I don't really see anybody coming up with something that is sounder.